Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of The Career Musician, we have Russ Kunkel, a self-taught drummer and producer who has worked with many popular artists, including Jackson Brown, Jimmy Buffett, Rita Coolidge, Neil Diamond, Bob Dylan, Glenn Fry, Art Garfunkel, Carole King, Lyle Lovett, Reba McIntyre, Stevie Nicks, Linda Ronstadt, Bob Seger, Carly Simon, Stephen Stills, James Taylor, Joe Walsh, Steve Winwood, Neil Young, Warren Zevin... And let's not forget, he was the studio and touring drummer for Crosby and Nash. Okay, as if that weren't enough, Russell Kunkel and his bandmates, career musicians to the stars, guitar trio Danny Korchmore, Wadi Watel, and Steve Postel, along with famed bassist Leland Sklar, these cats formed a brand new band called The Immediate Family. And let me tell you, they are kicking ass. Now, we've already had Wadi Watel, Danny Korchmore, and Steve Postel. Now, with Russ Kunkel, we have almost the whole band and right here on the Career Musician Podcast. Welcome, Russ Kunkel, to the Career Musician Podcast. I am super thrilled to have you here. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Man, all right. So I just have to say, just looking at the history, the credits, Jackson Brown, Bob Dylan, Buffett, Fogelberg, Glenn Fry, I mean, Carol King, I mean, the list, it, it doesn't stop. Linda Ronstadt, Bob Seeger, Car- Carly Simon, Joe Watts, Neil Young, I mean, bro, it's like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and B.B. King. I mean, wow. Like, talk about an illustrious career. So that's the first thing I want to say. I'm enamored. Secondly, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a studio musician. And it's people like you that I looked up to. Uh, like I said, you and all the guys in the immediate family. So just talk about how it all got started, if you don't mind. Well, which part? The immediate <laughs> family or, or uh, an illustrious career? <laughs> I, I think the illustrious career. I like One of the first things I like to discuss is, you know, when, the, when did the music bug bite you? Well, it, it started in a, a few different ways. Uh, living in Long Beach, California, and it was the summer of uh, my 11th grade in high school, and my mom said, you know, this summer you have to get a job, you know, to kind of help pay the bills and stuff, so I got a job at a signal gas station close to our house, and having that job for three months pretty much cemented in my mind that that's not the kind of work I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Mm. And I had already been in a couple bands, then we played on the weekends down in Long Beach at different dances and things. So I decided to throw my efforts full time into music because, you know, being a grease monkey wasn't yeah. gonna have it, wasn't gonna make it for me. But now I have a classic car and I love working on it because I'm, you know, it's a it's a passion, not a 
not a not something that I have to do. So right, that's right. when the music bug first bit me. It was a little bit of uh, you know kind of being pushed in the right direction. But um, my older brother before that was a drummer and uh, Gilbert, and he had a band that rehearsed in our house a lot. So I got to be around music at an early age. He introduced me to the drums and got me started. But the the big biggest break that I that I had as a, a musician was actually working for uh, being working on the James Taylor Sweet Baby James album. You know, mm-hmm. Peter Asher hired me to to play on that album. He came and watched me at a rehearsal. I was playing at the time with a wonderful uh, Americana folk artist named John Stewart. And Peter came, and Peter, who eventually uh, produced the John Stewart album later, uh, but he came and saw a rehearsal that I was doing with John and and hired me on the spot to play on the Sweet Baby James album. And I have to say that everything kind of was the domino effect after that. My association with James and then Carol and Danny and Peter just kind of parlayed into lots and lots and lots of other great opportunities for me. So I, one was in the right place at the right time. I met some very influential people along the way and I did the best I could to get rehired again. Well, that, that man, that's a magical phrase. (laughs) I did the best I can to get rehired again. When you found yourself in that position, it seemed from what you just described, it seemed very natural. Like it just kind of happened. Is that, was that in fact the experience or did it, take some digging to, to, to get in the right circles, quote unquote. Um, I was in the right place at the right time. And so the circles were all around me, but as far as my attitude towards getting hired again, you know, that you're talking about, you know, late sixties, early seventies and a studio musician was hired to play music for someone else's project. Some, a singer songwriter or a band or a publishing demo or whatever you were doing. So you weren't doing it for yourself. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I mean, my, my creed for, you know, for being successful at being a studio musician was very simple. You find out what's needed and wanted and you produce or present it. And that's true with anything. If you want to be successful at something. So, and you have, and you have to remember that it's not your music. It's not your song. You're being, you're being asked to come in and assist. Mm-hmm. And that's what a studio mis- uh, musician does is assist in the process. What's going on. And you try to, it's kind of like, that's kind of like the doctor's creed. Do first, do no harm. Ah, that's right. <laughs> and now, and, and you just made me think of something that I haven't thought of before. And I'll try to articulate it in this day and age, a lot of young musicians aren't playing on sessions and they aren't playing music with other people. They're playing music for their YouTube channel mm. and they're doing exactly what they want. And they're showing off all of their singular chops and the things that they learned how to do that get them off. And if you go too far down that road and you don't play with other people and you don't, uh, you don't start to understand what it's like to be a part of something as opposed to being the only part you're going to fall behind because no one's going to want to play with you. <laughs> wow, that you articulated that perfectly. Um, well said. I couldn't agree more. I think that any project is as good as the sum of all of its parts, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's what you're talking about. And I, I have to say, I hate to sound like an old jaded guy. Oh, I miss the old days. But I do in so many ways because of that very reason. You know, like you said, I mean, Sweet Baby James, you're talking about history. You're talking about musical 
cultural, artistic history that was encapsulated in sessions like that. Yeah. And I'm, af I'm afraid that perhaps we don't have as much of those experiences anymore. Well, n not, not as many, because like I said, there are people, once you realize, once everyone realized that if they had started a YouTube channel and they could become their, become a star just by themselves, doing whatever, telling jokes, playing an instrument, you know, whatever. It's, it, it's a wonderful venue for exposure. It really, really is. But as far as musicians go, you know, um, music is about playing with other people. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, the best experience of music is by playing with other people. You know, that's that's when you really get a tremendous amount of enjoyment out of it. Now, I'm not saying you can't get enjoyment out of sitting down in your room and playing an acoustic guitar beautifully like Steve Postel does. Right. You know, uh, it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. But but you have to you have to balance it out. You have to be able to play with people. Now, I remember I read somewhere that Dave Grohl was doing an interview and someone asked him, what, what's, the, what's your best advice for somebody that wants to break into the music business? And he said, find like-minded people that play different instruments, get in a garage and play until your fingers bleed. That's it. That's the best. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree with that. Wow. Okay. This is great. This is great. Um, so how did you go from knowing that I'm all right, I don't want to work on cars for a living. I want to go and get gigs. So what were some of the early gigs perhaps? Did you have any of those like those prom gigs or you know backyard parties and how did you get, you know, really cut your teeth in this in the gigging scene? Well, you know, the gigs that I played down in Long Beach that were, you know, during that period of time, they didn't pay very much. And, you know, we were hungry for anything. We'd play at the Elks Club. We'd play for car clubs. We'd play at the high schools. We'd play for, you know, uh, weddings. We'd, we'd play for anything. And, and at that time, there was a few clubs. There was a, there was a club up in L.A. called the Cheetah. There was a, uh, you know, there were some clubs down in Long Beach that we played that, uh, you know, had us back a few times. And, um, but those were, the, you know, we were just, you know, 18, 19 years old. So we were just. You know, we were falling all over ourselves to get to the next gig. You know, just right. hungry to continue to do it. So from the... I remember of it. Right. <laughs> well, from those late teen er you know, years to the early 20s, and then finally hooking up with uh, Peter Asher through, like you said, the John Stewart gig, and having Peter put you on with, you know, the James Taylor uh, record, what was that transition like? At what point in your career... Did that all happen? Was it shortly thereafter or did it? Yeah, well, very shortly thereafter. I mean, one, I came to LA and with a band called things to come hmm. a band, my band from long beach. And we, we had a manager, uh, from up in Hollywood and he brought us up and got us a gig playing the whiskey, a go, go for 19 weeks in a row, opening up for everybody. So I got a lot of exposure hmm. in the LA music scene. And that was in 1998. So, you know, I mean, excuse me, 1968. 1960, okay. That was in 1968. So, so there was a lot going on in Southern California in 1968. Wow. And uh, it was an amazing time to be on the Sunset Strip and, and experiencing all of that. So I met a lot of great people. And uh, the band broke up and I started doing um, uh, music publishing demos for a man named Joel Sill at ABC Dunhill Music. And during those sessions, I met people like Joe Osborne and Larry Nechtel and, 
mm-hmm. uh, Al Casey and uh, you know Tommy Tedesco. I met a lot of great studio musicians, and I kind of broke into the studio scene from that. You know, starting wow. to do some you know small sessions. But 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 truly, you know, meeting Peter Asher and playing with James and Carol and from the, you know Sweet Baby James and Tapestry and Blue, all all of the Johnny Mitchell's Blue, all of those albums I played I played on all happened in 1970. So so the trajectory from from those recordings and from that stuff for me kind of carried me well into the 80s by touring with James, touring with Carol touring with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, touring with Jackson Brown, recording with all of them. So one thing just led to another. But it really started by by playing on the Sweet Baby James album and, and having Peter Asher as a friend. I, I can't stress enough and how important you know that, that friendship was. Not just for me, but for Danny, for Leland, for all of us. Wadi, too, you know, so. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I always talk about the R word, relationships, right? Like we, we have to remember that so oftentimes the work does come from relationships, that, especially the ones that are well cultivated. And, and, you know, now it's become such a buzzword. Oh, what about networking and this and that? Eh, I, I, I shouldn't feel like networking. It should just feel like natural life, just letting those relationships happen, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, you just said something, a couple things that I have to pinpoint here. Joni Mitchell Blue, Carol King Tapestry, uh, Sweet Baby James, James Taylor, all happened in 1970. That's an amazing, again, that's an amazing credit to add to your list. Um, you and all the guys, like you just mentioned, Wadi and, and Steve Postel and Danny Korchmar and everybody else in that era. It's just so much, there was so much musical history. At ni- in 1970, as a late teen or early 20-something, did you realize that what you were working on at the time would grow to be such iconic pieces of work? No, hindsight is definitely 2020. Yeah. Um, while we were, and I've been asked this question a lot, while we were making those albums, 
we were just making them, you know, happy to happy to do it and very excited to be work to be working. And quite honestly, you know, every time I left the studio, I just wanted to make sure that I'd get hired back again. You know, I was more concerned about that than thinking about whether something was going to be a hit or not. Mm-hmm. But looking back on it, if the, if those are the only three albums that I ever played on, my career was a success. That's right. Yeah. You know, and everybody else has their own. You know, Wadi has his set of uh, of albums and projects that he worked on that are a little bit different from mine. Danny's are a little bit different from mine. Leland's are a little bit different. But for me, the, those three those three albums for me are just you know realizing that I actually did play on all of them and it wasn't a dream is is a um, uh, like a Christmas present every moment. Pretty darn cool, man. I remember talking to the other cats in, in the immediate family and, you know, they were telling me about uh, tracking live, you know, and how that was a, a big thing, especially I love tracking live. I've had the pleasure of doing several sessions tracking live over the years, not as many anymore, but um, there's a magic that happens, right? It's just, it's magical. So you're going into these, again, these iconic studios, even though you don't realize it at the time, you're set up, there's some cool rugs on the floor, some cool lighting and candles, I'm imagining, and you just, you start to vibe out, right? Is that, is that the, is that kind of like the deal? Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm going to quote Danny Korchmar. He has a saying that he likes to use. He said, there's no plug-in that you can use that'll, that'll replicate four or five people in a room playing music together that's right that's right and it sounds like peter absolutely it sounds like peter asher really understood that concept as well of course many producers you know especially back then really got that um like quincy always says the job of a producer is making the right phone calls right knowing who to call well well sometimes and and, you know and not knowing when to say stop yeah, that's right. You know, knowing when, knowing when you have it, you know, and not over yeah. overdoing something. That's right. But, I mean, that would be an interesting podcast for you to do is just to to uh, talk to all of all the producers that are still around from that time, the Peter Ashers, the Lou Adlers. I mean, so, there's so many of them that are gone now. Right. I mean, Jimmy Iovine made amazing records. I mean, I worked on Belladonna with Jimmy Iovine before he, you know, became you know the gigantic music mogul that he that he you know rose to be yeah and uh and jimmy was jimmy's a great producer absolutely fantastic producer that's so funny that people even forget about that because like you said he's he's more of a a business mogul now and uh i i know a little bit about jimmy uh, just listening to uh his you know interviews or reading about his bruce springsteen days how he got Mm -hmm. started right so that's pretty incredible that you get to work with him as well well, yeah, Jimmy Iovine, Richard Perry, you know, <clears throat> Peter Asher, you know, Quincy Jones, Arif Mardin. During that period of time, there, there were producers and labels that nurtured artists. Right. You know, they, they, if they, when they hired Aretha Franklin, when, you know, when Amit, you know, signed Aretha Franklin, he didn't expect her first album to be a smash hit. It was fine you know wait for the second or third one you know nowadays and a label sign an artist they they, it's like a flag they're running up a flagpole to see who salutes it that's right and if no one does well then we're on to the next flag and we move on that's right they 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 so are so quick to dismiss it and just literally put it on the shelf they need somebody else's validation it seems like like you said they have to run it up the flagpole that just seems so uh such the opposite of what it should be 
Well, it, it wasn't like that before. We live in a world of immediate gratification now on all fronts, all levels, all genres. Every, everybody wants everything now. Right, right. So true. Yeah. Man. Okay, so as your career goes on, the, the, the credits just continue to pile up. Jackson Brown, Jimmy Buffett, uh, Harry Chapman, uh, Rita Coolidge, uh, Neil Diamond, again, Bob Dylan. Um, as your resume is building, do you, at what point do you realize, okay, wait a minute, I am one of the cats. I'm doing the shit. I'm doing the big shit. You know what I mean? You had to have a moment, an aha moment where you're like, okay, I'm kind of doing some cool stuff here, right? You know, I, I would have to say that if I've had that moment, it's been closer to the present day than it, than it was way back then. Okay. You know, like like I said, I was I was more concerned about you know feeding my family, mm. uh, staying healthy, you know, making sure that I could do uh, you know the next tour that would come up. You know, I was looking forward. You know, looking two or three steps ahead. You know, to make sure that you know things would happen in a, in a timely fashion. But uh, I'm like I said, I'm I'm incredibly humbled by the uh by the great artists that i've had a chance to work with and, and and their music that i've had to make over the years and there's so many of the cats i'm just one of them so i like that i like that and managing a career for ourselves as career musicians is quite the task isn't it <laughs> it is and it takes a village you know it right. takes it takes support of a of a family and a, and a wife and 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 friends and you know it's a it's a group effort you know That's it's right. not no one person can do it themselves at, at one at any point in your career have you ever outsourced some of the managerial tasks speaking of the village uh, have you ever had a manager or somebody like that or, or yeah, an i have i okay. have and 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 the, the immediate family has a great management team right now probably the best one that i've ever been involved with <clears throat> fred crochelle and david Helfont. nice um, but uh, I've had managers, personal managers in the past, and they've been good. But they can a manager can only do as much as you're willing to do before him. In other words, you know, <clears throat> if you promote yourself and you're out there doing good work, then they can get you gigs. They, get, they can't necessarily get a gig for you out of thin air unless, unless you're already out there promoting yourself anyway. So Right, right, doing the hustle, grinding. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's really awesome that you mentioned family because I always respect the people that can balance family life with our, you know, uh, especially peculiar lifestyles in music, right? So talk, talk about that. That's quite a balance. Uh, and like you say, doing the, the tours and whatnot and still maintaining family life. That's Well, I spent most of my life on the road. When I wasn't on the road, I was in the studio and, and I, I paid the price for that in, in certain relationships. Mm -hmm. Some, some with uh, like with former wives, some with my children, but in the most part, you know, for for the most part, it's all worked out to be good, you know, in the end. Um, but if I had it to do over again, I probably wouldn't go on the road as much as I did. Mm -hmm. you know, I've learned now that that there's a price you pay for that. There's a price you pay for not being around. And so, my advice to young musicians is like, if you if if, the, if your plan is to go out and work as much as you can, stay single. Right. You know, go out and just do it. And so other other people not depending upon you for your presence to be around. Um, but for me, it was different. And, you know, now now I realize, you know, in, in the relationship I'm in now with my wife, Shauna, that, I mean, she is such a big support part of my career. 
just by encouraging me to do the things I need to do, but also reminding me when, when there needs to be balance right. in, my, in my day-to-day of like, you know, okay, well, you've worked on that enough. Now let's go for a walk. Let's go. <laughs> Hi, this is Russ Kunkel, and I'm a career musician. Blasting the stereotype of musicians. Follow us at the Career Musician Podcast. Download, subscribe, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I have to again agree and you know talk about Lola who you met last week. <laughs> she she's my balance for that and and it is an amazing blessing to have that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um so something else again I was I was once in a similar position. I was on the road quite a bit. I don't think as much as perhaps you were. I was the music director for Babyface, Kenny Babyface Edmonds for a long time. A huge fan of his. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, m- myself included. Uh, I was with him for about 12 years. We didn't do big, big tours like he used to back in the day, but, we, you know, the weekend warrior type stuff, a lot of fly dates and things like that. Occasional couple weeks in Japan or U- Europe. Um, so I can totally relate to that. But again, it is an interesting dichotomy because we have to, we have to figure out a way to survive, right? So, you know, and, and when you do have those jobs and they say, look, you can make X amount of dollars in three months, then you're like, oh, wow, maybe I should go do that, you know? Yeah. So, you have to take them. But it's always good to make those decisions with your family. Absolutely. So that, you know, and there's always got to be a give and take, you know, you, you, know, you got to, you, you can't just always get, you got to give. That's right. That's right. I love that. And hey, speaking of the touring versus the studio work, I know when I first moved to LA in 2005, I sought the advice of a couple friends. I had a couple tour opportunities and I said, you know, if I go out and take this tour, I'm going to be missing that potential studio work. You know, and I know I lived in Nashville for a long time. In Nashville, you were either one or two things, a road dog or a studio cat. But you can never be both, right? Now that's changed, obviously. Was that stigma the same way out here? If you did go on the road and you got those studio calls and you couldn't make it, did it was it detrimental to your studio career when you came back? Well, fortunately for us, it wasn't detrimental because you know we would go in the studio and cut an album with James Taylor, and then when it was released, we'd go on tour with him, uh-huh. and in the, or we'd cut an album with Linda Ronstadt. When it was released, we'd go on tour with her. Got an album with Jackson Brown when it was released. We go on tour with him. So, right. and it, at one point, I remember that you know Jackson's management and Peter Asher, they were they were talking to each other to find out how they should book their tours so that all the the same musicians could be on the tours. Right. They, they would book it sometimes. But I remember one year where I toured with all three. With I toured with with Linda, with Jackson, and with James in one year. Wow. And so it was all coordinated. So for us, it was different. We, I, I don't think we suffered. And when we came back into town and, and we were around for a while, not going on the road, there was plenty of, there was plenty of work around to do, but there's not as much studio work. now. Right. Right. There's, there's work for film and TV. 
Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of that is farmed out to, I'm sure, people like yourself who are also composers who do it all in house because they offer you peanuts now to do That's a television show. You know, and they and if they, and if you won't if you won't do what they want, they'll just use temp music. They use temp music at library production libraries, which are yeah, and which is every, everybody. And that's another thing composers have done. They've created production libraries of all the cues that they made, and they get they you know they get royalties on it, which is fine. But you know the the days of a lot of a lot of sessions. I mean, I were I remember doing a session at ten, one, and four. You know, I do three sessions a day and have to have three different drum kits and a cartridge company. But those days are gone. Not for everybody. There's musicians in town that do the same thing, but they're hopping from film date to film date, right. and the, and the scale is different. Right. So. I have a huge grin on my face because, again, by the time I was 15, <clears throat> I knew that's what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to be one of those studio guys that you're talking about. And everybody would say a 10, one, or four. Or in Nashville, it was a 10, two, and a six. You know. Right. Uh, three sessions a day, five days a week, sometimes six days a week on Saturdays and the overscale and all that. That must have been really cool. And and you have to have the different rigs and you had your cartridge company bring the different rigs to the different studios. I mean, talk about that. That had to be fun, uh, at least in the beginning until maybe you got burnt out or, you know, tell us your experience. Well, the best part about all of that was was having, um, having the experience of playing all that different music. Yes, with a, a, like three different artists, three different you know projects in one day. I mean, you can't you can't buy that kind of college. You know, it's right. it was an amazing experience to be exposed to all of that different music and all those different players, different engineers, different studios, different mm. producers, and that's how <clears throat> that's how we networked back then. Yeah, you know, and you go in. I would go into those dates wanting to be called back. Yeah, do, doing everything I could to make sure that it wasn't about me. It was about making sure that they liked what I did and they liked how I integrated with the, with the people and communicated. And hopefully, they would hire me back. And for the most part, they did. That's amazing. You mentioned one of my all time guitar heroes, Tommy Tedesco. Uh, you said you worked with him, and I bought a video of his back in the nineties, and he was teaching a, a course. You know, and he said. Look, when you get behind the glass and the producer asks you, the producer or the composer asks you if you can do something, the answer is always yes, period. I don't care if they ask you to play standing on your head with your hands tied behind. Yes, I can do that. Give me 30 seconds. I'll find the right instrument and I'll be right there. <laughs> you know, like, and, and I love that. I love that kind of uh, challenge and I love that kind of attitude, that mindset. Well, it, what you just said reminds me of a, a story that Leland tells. Which I'll, Leland was doing a session with uh, with with uh, Tommy, and uh, and the producer, like you said, asked him to to play mandolin. And uh, and uh, Tommy said, "Sure, no problem." And he reached down behind the gobo, like no one could see what he was doing, and he got back up and he started playing. You know, and the producer goes, "Perfect." And then, and then the, a little bit later on, the producer said, do you have you, know, a, a, you something, another, inch, a 12 string, something, whatever. And he says, yeah, no, no problem. He bends down like he's picking something up and he plays and the producer goes, great. And Leland said he, he sat up and he looked over and all, Tom, all Tommy had was one acoustic guitar. 
And so what he was doing is he was just changing his positions in his fingerings to make it sound like what the producer wanted. So that's a perfect example of what your story, where the answer is always yes. Yes. Even if you don't have the answer is yes. I love it. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. Have you experienced that in, in the drumming world when you're behind the glass? You know, have you been challenged in ways where you're like, oh, shoot, let me think quick on my toes here? Um. Well, sometimes, sometimes about playing certain things, you know, that, that is kind of needed and wanted. And if it's not in your wheelhouse, that's uncomfortable. You know, you got to try to, you got to stretch for a little bit to, you know, to do that. And reading as well. You know, I read okay, but I'm not a great sight reader. Right. So sometimes I like to, if I know I'm going to have to be reading, I try to get into the studio early and be able to look at the charts and kind of scope out where the tough bits might be, you know. But, um, I remember working with uh, working with Jimmy Iovine actually, and he used a a, a great engineer named Shelly Akis, mm. who uh, engineered all the Bob Seger records and the Stevie Nicks records. And Shelly had this thing of, uh, and th not to his detriment, but it was difficult on drummers. He would work on a snare drum sound abnormally long, mm. and and like I'm hitting the snare drum, whack whack ba 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 ba. Wow, wow, wow. After about doing that for about 10 minutes, mm. Shelly goes, um, Russ, could you tune that snare drum up a little bit? It looks like it's getting, it sounds like it's getting a little flat. And I said, yeah, it's getting flat. I've been hitting it for 10 minutes. <laughs> it was kind of like, you don't understand, right? <laughs> All right. Let's get a sound that's good and then we'll be okay. You know, so. Hold on, yeah. 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 It's funny because um, I think there is a, a, a unique Oh, uh, how do you say like personality difference between musicians and engineers, especially in in those scenarios where the musicians are used to going in and cutting and or tracking as a group, and you have and we're used to having you know two mu two engineers behind the board, a, a main engineer and an assistant. And isn't it funny how oftentimes we can get you know impatient? We're like, all right, come on, let's go, let's cut, let's do it. All right, did you get? Okay, cool. Did you get it? All right, great. All right, let's move on. What's next? You know. It, you've, I mean, you've obviously experienced that. <laughs> well, for sure. And there's uh, ultimately there's always issues right. with electronics and more times from the studio side than, than on the playing side. That's right. Um, just for some reason there, something's out of phase or a, a microphone cables is not working and you got to troubleshoot stuff. That's right. And there's there's a chain, you know, there's a, an electronic chain that happens from a microphone to a speaker. There's a lot of places where it can go wrong. And, uh, you know, that's unfortunate in the studio because it slows down the process. You know, if you're right on the verge of cutting a good take and then something goes wrong, uh, it's not so good. But you, you work around it. Especially, especially if it's a good band take, right? You know, you have five or six people and we all get a good take and something happened where maybe, you know, <laughs> it didn't it didn't get recorded, God forbid. Oh, <laughs> yeah, those those aren't so fun. Yeah, exactly. Man, absolutely. All right. So I have to ask you this, and, and this will be the only uh, starstruck, quote unquote, question I ask. And I don't know if this is a myth or not, but maybe you can shed some light on it. The old Bob Dylan story about that has been going around the business for years about when Bob said, what do you want to make to his musicians? And one musician said, oh, I want to make this. And the other musician said, oh, I want to make this. And then they both got what they requested. And then when they were talking later on, 
one musician got a lot more money than the other one. Have you ever heard something like that? <laughs> Never. Okay. I mean, I worked with Bob in the studio. Okay. Recorded with him, and he was just, it was a brilliant experience, and he was wonderful. And I didn't even care if I was paid at all. I was working with Bob Dylan. How was that? That must have been surreal. It was. It was, a, it was amazing. The first time I got to work with him, I was in New York with Peter Asher on another project, and Peter called me and said, put your drums in a cab and get over to CBS studios. You're going to, and I said, why are we cutting more tracks? He said, no, you're going to play with George Harrison and Bob Dylan. They're in town and they want to jam and they need a drummer. So I did that session and, you know, pinching myself the whole time. And, and then because of that, uh, Bob Johnson was the, was the producer uh, on the, that night in, in New York. And he called me back to play on the new morning album. So, Wow. That was an example of, you know, doing one thing good and getting rewarded by being called back to do another. That leads to another. Man, I, I, I miss those days. That It seems like that used to happen a lot, especially when I was in Nashville, because we were still tracking quite a bit, um, you know, in a live setting. That there's so, much, there's so much to be said about that. Like you said, that's why your opening statement, when you do everything to try to get called back, there's so much weight in that. And, and I think... I think there's a reverence that we all have earlier on for other musicians and, and producers and the people that have come before us. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I definitely miss that. Um, obviously, you can tell I'm a little geeked out by talking to you and your colleagues because I'm such a huge fan. So, uh, you know. Thank you for having me, Noah. Man, I love it. So, so let me ask you this. First of all, what's the day in the life like of Russ Kunkel now? So, what you know, like you said, the scene is di is different. What what's your daily look like? Well, now it's different because of COVID. Oh, of course. There, there's a there's a similarity in our lives, uh, in all of our lives, be because of it. You know, we're kind of in prison. We can't travel the way we want to travel. You know, we you know, it's just it's it's very difficult. But you know, my day is uh, is pretty much the same. We there's a, we're doing a lot of stuff with immediate family. I mean, there's a, a lot of responsibility on all of us. We're making our own videos. We shoot our own video footage for uh, for songs that we release, uh, and we send them to our uh, the, the guy who edits them and puts them together. So we've all had to become, you know, cameraman and soundman, and, <laughs> and find ways to to you know to do all kinds of recording at home and so on and so forth. So, but a day in the life for me is you know getting up, spending. A good part of the morning uh, with with my wife and our dog Lily, and having a nice lunch, and then running some errands, and uh, and then at some point during the during the afternoon, uh, get back in the house. I have a a little practice kit set up, you know, in the house. That I, I always try to play a little bit every day, nice. and work on writing, work on some songwriting, and uh, you know, just just taking it a moment at a time. That's that's how I spend my days. Just being thankful that I have one minute after the next. Amen to that, man. I couldn't agree more. And I was going to bring that up. Thank you. The immediate family. I love the band. I love the videos. I love how you guys are all recording your separate, uh, you know, shots at home. And then, like you say, you have them edited together. Beautiful stuff. Talk about that. So immediate family, you guys just released an album towards the end of uh, 2020. We haven't released an album yet. We've okay. released an EP. EP. Gotcha. Right, which was five songs, right. and we're just about to release another one. We we had two singles off of that, um, "Cruel Twist" and "Slipping and Sliding," 
There were, we made videos for both of those. We just uh, um, finished this mastering the second EP. That'll the single will drop, I guess, March something coming right up, uh, and then the EP right after that. So we have two focus tracks on that EP, and then in September, when COVID, just before COVID started, at the end of uh, 2019, we have we have a full album of unreleased material in the can. That's and right. that's going to come out in September. We're very excited about that. Along with a documentary that Denny Tedesco, Tommy's son, has made. He, Denny, who made the Wrecking Crew documentary, has uh, almost finished with our documentary. And that's going to be coincide coming out towards the end of this year or the beginning of 2022. And then sometime probably April or Mar March or April this year, we're going to go uh, into the studio April or May. We're going to go into the studio, cut a new album. We have a whole new batch of material nice. to come out next year. So we're going to, it's going to be bang, bang, bang for us. You know? I love that, man. I love that. Uh, now, speaking of uh, the, the, the wrecking crew and the film, like you were talking about, my good friend, Jack Pyatt uh, was involved with that. And uh, you know, Jack as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. So he, he of jam card or, Yes, he's with Jam Card, and he connected me with Lisa Roy, your publicist. Right, uh, and that's how we're all, you know, meeting here. So again, shout out to Jack, and 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 thank you for that, and big shout out to to the to the Tedesco family. Speaking of the Wrecking Crew, I want to talk about the section, uh, which was also dubbed. Correct me if I'm wrong. You guys were dubbed the Mellow Mafia. Yeah, by some idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but the, just like the Wrecking Crew, we had the section, and and again, all you guys were part of that, and big studio band and touring band. You know, well, nothing, nothing, nothing will ever compare to what the Wrecking Crew did, and, okay. and the body of the body of records, number one hits that they played on. No one, no, no studio group will ever, right. ever even come close to that. Right. The difference, and, and and they were all incredible absolutely incredible musicians you know yeah. um across the board uh the difference between the wrecking crew and the immediate family or the section is that we toured with the acts that we played with yeah. the acts we recorded with we went on tour with them the wrecking crew tended to stay in town in the studio and just, and just you know there was so much work right. so much work for them there's no way they could have turned it down Right. So they tended. I think later on, uh, later on, I think that some of them toured. I know that uh, that um, I'm trying to think of who Hal Blaine. I think toured with uh, John Denver a bit. Yes. You know, so um, I think later they did do some touring, but but that that therein lies the difference. And we we will never uh, you know <laughs> never do the, you know do the body of work that they did. You know. So. Yeah. They stand, the wrecking crew stands alone. But still, your you guys' body of work is is impressive nonetheless. So yeah, that's awesome. Okay, uh, you you told us about the immediate family. You've told us a little bit about your words of wisdom to musicians coming up today about making that choice between touring and staying home. Obviously, due to COVID, we're all home. Uh, words of wisdom to youngster coming up today. You know, pandemic or not, what, you know, what do you tell them that because what you know, once you have that burning desire to do this for a living, it's hard to squelch it, right? 
Yeah, it really is. I mean, my advice to young musicians, singer, songwriter, whatever coming up now would be to find just, just like Dave Grohl said, find like-minded people that play different instruments, right. get form a band and play, just play as much as you possibly can. And if you're gifted enough to be a songwriter, they're really, you really can make money in songwriting. There's two ways to make money in the music business, uh, writer's royalties, publishing royalties and live playing. You know, go out and play in a club and get a paycheck. You know, other and and if you're and if you're really successful, like Lee Sklar, and you have a YouTube channel that has hundreds of thousands of followers, you can actually make money on YouTube. So those, those would be those would be my three recommendations. I love it. I love it. And the and the key to all of it is if you want to be successful in this business, there's one thing that you have to be good. As, there's no way around that, brother. You have to be good. <laughs> That's if you're it. Good, you got a shot. So you got a shot. Whatever you got to do to be good, not only that you think you're good, but all of your worst critics think you're good. Mm, I like that. Even your worst critics. All right, hey, can we wrap with some uh, rapid fire questions? Yes. You ready? I'm ready. I already know the, the answer to this one. Your drink of choice. My drink of choice. Well, I have a couple. Okay. Uh, a really good uh, red uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. One thing I'm drinking uh, currently is uh, called Triana. It's made in the Central Coast uh, by a company that also makes a great red wine called Austin Hope. Nice. So that's one. And uh, I like a nice uh, potato vodka martini. That's the one that Lola told me about. <laughs> All right. Which do you prefer, studio or live? Hmm. That's a tough one because I really enjoy both. I'd probably say live just because of the excitement. Right. Instrument you wish you played. Instrument I wish I played. Hmm. Piano. Favorite. No, better. Okay, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, because you're a songwriter, so you have to play some, right? Uh, guilty pleasure food. Guilty pleasure food. Hmm. Guilty pleasure food. Popcorn. I like that. I like that. Top three artists that you're listening to now. Top three artists in your playlist. Uh, Ray LaMontagne. Chris Stapleton. And um, ACDC Essentials. Ah, I, I love the variety. That's killer. Favorite city? You've been to many. My favorite city? Vancouver. Mm. Your friends would say you are? Stoic. I like that. That's what I used to describe my father. Yeah, I like that. Song or band that changed your life? The Beatles. Favorite decade of music? 60s name three tour essentials three tour essentials like that you take on tour with you yep <clears throat> um a speaker a computer um and your own coffee ah that's i've never heard that one i like that so you're a bit of a coffee snob then well i like to have good coffee yeah there you go <laughs> Hidden talents. Hidden talents. I don't know. Hidden. 
I don't know if I have any hidden talents. Maybe something that your friends don't know you're capable of. Uh, I have some pretty good carpentry skills. Oh, see? I model the house by myself, so. Really? Well, pretty much, with the help of a couple other workers, yeah. Wow, that's impressive. You did all the plans, the schematics and everything? No, it was just, it was just like taking off siding, putting on new siding and roof and doing all the baseboards and the cabinetry and, you know, stuff like that, molding and everything. Very impressive. All right. I like to work with my hands. Okay, that explains it. So, and that segues perfect to the last question. What would you do if you weren't a career musician? I'd probably be a painter, an artist. Nice. I was an art major in, in high school, so I, I would probably do something like that. Very awesome. Or a surf bum, I could just, you know, <laughs> travel the world surfing different waves. So, so you still surf? I do. That's awesome. How long have you been surfing? Oh, probably since I was about 15. Oh, wow. So that is so cool. That's something I admire. I've tried it once and boy, I'm embarrassed. It's so hard. It's not something you can just try once. You have to obviously. It's like riding a bike. If you, if you do it early enough, you, you, you know, gets a, as you get older, it gets, yeah, there's a little more preparation that goes into it. I don't surf as much in the winter as I do in the summer because the water's colder, but right. But I do love it. Do you put on a, a wetsuit or a dry suit? Wetsuit for sure. Yeah. Okay. I live in San Clemente, so it's nice. To, I live down here just south of Huntington Beach, and it's we have great waves, and so there's lots of opportunities. Except for, you know, when COVID happened, everybody got a – it's like everyone got a memo that everyone was going to start surfing. <laughs> because it, it's kind of it's, – it's something you could do outdoors, and you're kind of by yourself. You know, it's like golf, you know, which I like to play golf as well. But – but the, the, all the surfboard manufacturers, right, everyone, they had no surfboards to sell. Everyone bought them. Wow. So all the breaks got super crowded. Mm. So it's kind of like I haven't surfed as much this year as I normally would just because there's too many people in the water. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's not worth it. Not worth chancing it. Yeah. Wow. Russell Kunkel, I am so grateful. Thank you so much, my friend. It's, no, Matt, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for, for wanting to have me. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.